Biden believes he can push through political headwinds as he plans to announce his re-election campaign. The civil war in Sudan leaves an estimated 17,000 Americans vulnerable, and new polling information reveals good and bad news for evangelicals in regard to young people and religion. This is Truth in Politics with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Okay, according to most reports, uh, President Biden is going to be announcing his bid to run for president again in 2024 this week. Now, this is, of course, we've we've had these predictions before, and essentially, what's happened in the past is that um, the the announcement would be forthcoming, and then some big event would happen. Either it would be with foreign policy or domestic policy that would make it embarrassing for the president to come out and announce a re-election campaign, and he's had to put off the announcement. So um, this, apparently, this is it. Uh, sometime tomorrow, likely, uh, we're going to see President Biden um, announce that he's going to run again for president in 2024. Now, the question is, why? Uh, because he is facing significant political headwinds uh, and a lot of polling shows this. I mean, this is not just one or two outlanding uh, outlier polls that show that the president has problems in his own party, but these are consistently showing up with the president having problems with foreign policy, uh, the president having problems with the economy, uh, the president having, having problems with cultural issues. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which President Biden is pushing against the culture. And of course, then there's the big question of his age. He would be 86 years old uh, when he finishes the second term. And a lot of people just think that that's too old. Now, it's not too old when a person has demonstrated that their mental acuity is remaining strong in their later years. But it is too old when there's definite signs that that's not the case. And President Biden I think, has demonstrated time and time again that he's got some issues when it comes to his memory, when it comes to being able to speak um, plainly. Um, there's just a lot of issues on the table. but and, and Americans are concerned about that, not only Americans as a whole, but the New York Times editorial board is concerned about it. And we'll get to here in a few minutes a piece that they wrote over the weekend calling into question uh, President Biden's age as being a, a big detriment to the to the fact that he wants to run for president again. Um, the president is deeply unpopular among voters, both Republicans and Democrats, when you look at recent polling. Now, my usual caveat is that polling at this stage in any kind of political contest, when you're talking about months away, when you don't even have all of the candidates in the in, announced that are likely going to run, uh, on the Republican side, you have Tim Scott, who is probably going to announce his candidacy sometime, maybe before the end of this week, and if not, certainly within the first few weeks of May. He's either going to say he's in or he's out. Now, I'd, 
I, I don't have any inside information. My inclination is to believe that Senator Scott is going to run for president um, on the Republican side. And of course, Ron DeSantis, the big question is, Governor DeSantis, is he going to run for president or not? Is he going to be a candidate? And he's, he hasn't declared. He's waiting um, for the end of the Florida legislative session, which should wrap up um, in the next couple of weeks. And then Governor DeSantis will be taking the national stage either as a candidate or as uh, a non-candidate. I, I, I think there's very little chance that Ron DeSantis is not going to run for president. He's going to be a candidate. So when you look at all this polling data, I'm going to give you some information here that pretends problems, that is, that forecast a lot of problems for President Biden. But at the same time, this is stuff that's based on polls that are way, way out from a presidential primary. Um, and so at this point, when we don't have everybody in the race, as, as I've said, no, not everybody has declared. There, nobody's spending a lot of money uh, on ads um, and anything like that. Then this polling is sort of a snapshot of where the American people are now. The question is, who can persuade them in the future? But with all that, with all that in mind. Uh, right now, a majority of Democrats say that they want someone other than Biden. Now, that's unprecedented. That is, that's an incredible statistic when you stop and think that he is the current president of the United States. And he didn't do terrible in the midterms. He didn't do great. He lost seats, his party did, in the House of Representatives, but he was able to actually pick up a seat in the United States Senate. And so as a midterm, for a midterm election that was predicted, predicted to be a tremendous blowout, big win for Republicans, take the Senate, take the House. When you look at the actual results, uh, President Biden's party, the Democrat Party, ended up doing fairly well. Republicans underperformed, Democrats overperformed in that environment. And so that would indicate that President Biden is maybe stronger and in fact, it was after the midterms that I think all the talk began about the possibility of President Biden running for re-election. I don't think there was any uh, enthusiasm behind him running before the, the midterm elections. The result of that caused some Democrats to want to give him another chance. But when you look at this now and you find less than 50% of his own party, even in light of a better-than-expected midterm outcome, and 47% are the only, that's all they can muster for President Biden from his own party to run again. Um, they want somebody else. The, the Democrat Party wants somebody other than Biden. According to an AP poll, just 26% of Americans overall want to see him seek a second term. So he's, got, he's down to 47% in his own party. But when you, when you expand that to everybody, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, only 26% respond and say, yeah, we think it'd be a good idea for Biden to run again. However, a new poll this weekend released by NBC News Heart Public Opinion Strategies shows the most concerning trend for Biden, even though those trends should be very concerning. When asked who they will vote for in 2024, the 47%, 47%, which is the same number that's within the Democrat Party that wants somebody other than Biden, but 47% of Americans say they will vote for a Republican 
and 41% say they will vote for Biden. So you've got a six percentage point lead generically. Um, Well, it's really not generic because you've got Biden on the Democrat side. You're looking at his numbers. He's at 41%. But people who say, nope, I'm going to revoke right now. If the election was held today, I would vote for the Republican. Now, that, assuming that doesn't matter who the Republican is, 21% of those polled said that they will definitely vote for Biden. 39% out of that 47% say they will definitely vote for a Republican candidate. So when you look at the definites, when you look at Biden against a generic Republican, he's underwater by six points. But when you look at, say, Biden against the, as far as definite people who say I've already made up my mind there's no way I'm going to vote for Biden or I've already made up my mind I'm voting for Biden and the people who say I've made up my mind I'm definitely going to vote for a Republican Biden is underwater by almost eight well 18 points 21 to 39 percent 39 percent definitely say they'll vote for the Republican candidate and that's of course um a generic candidate, but you've got Biden versus the generic. Now, when you get specific and say, well, what about party candidates? What about if you throw a name in there, does that make the difference? Well, a Quinnipiac poll shows that Biden leads Trump nationwide 49 to 45%. Now, again, that doesn't mean a thing right now in terms of whether or not uh, Trump can beat Biden in a rematch. Um, that because that 49 to 45 percent is only four percent. Uh, Biden is the current president of the United States. I, it, it, that's that's a uh, that doesn't really give us an accurate view at all of what the end result of the election is going to be. But again, it's a snapshot of where the American people are right now. Biden also holds an advantage in all of the key battleground states. Trump's favorability rating among voters is in the high 30s to low 40s, whereas Biden's numbers are still low, but they're closer to the mid-40s. So you've got Trump fluctuating between, and and this is all Americans. This is not Republicans, Democrats. This is Republicans, Democrats, and independents, everybody. This poll represents American voters. Um, Whereas, so you've you've got Biden... Uh, behind or rather leading President Trump, according to a, an NBC poll, they found that 60% of Americans do not want President Trump to run again. Now, again, I don't know that I believe that poll. That's an NBC poll. Um, I haven't looked at the specifics. Uh, I read about the poll, and it and I, I can tell you that right now, again, uh, they these polls are driven by news stories that are being pushed by the legacy media. You've got a lot of news stories out there about President Trump being indicted. Now, for Republicans, that ramps up support within the Republican Party for President Trump. But for Americans in general, stories about the president being indicted doesn't help his image. I mean, it's, it's uh, you, you know, we a lot of times we get in the echo chamber and we keep saying the things that we want to hear, and we hear those things echoed back to us, and we keep repeating them as if they're absolute fact. So 
we, we say in the Republican Party, oh, they're going after Trump again. Every time they go after him, that helps him in terms of being able to do better among voters. Yeah, among Republican voters, among the base, because they understand that the, the justice system, the, the system itself, the swamp in Washington, is out to get President Trump. They, they just, on the one hand, Democrats want to run against him because they think Biden can beat him. And on the other hand, they don't want him to run because they want to destroy him and everything that he represents, which means he, they want to destroy me and you because we would dare vote for President Trump. I mean, those are things that we have to think about going into the election. Now, the only other candidate that shows up in the polling um, so far with any numbers that are significant, of course, you've got uh, Nikki Haley, um, you've got uh, Asa Hutchinson, governor of Arkansas. Some of you probably didn't even know he was running. He is running for president. Um, you've got the other candidates that are showing up at all are showing up in single digits. And so there, there's really not much that we can tell about that until we get to the primaries. So the other candidate, of course, showing up is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis leads Biden nationwide, and he leads Biden in critical swing states. Trump trails Biden by one point in Arizona, two points in Michigan, four points in Pennsylvania. DeSantis leads Biden in Arizona by six, in Michigan by three, uh, uh, excuse me, by two, and in Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania by three points. Let me go back and, and, and do that again. DeSantis leads Biden in Arizona by six points, two points in Michigan, and three points in Pennsylvania. And similar trends are evident in, other, in some other battleground states. But again, that's, I mean, Ron DeSantis has not even declared his candidacy yet. President Trump has just now started to attack DeSantis in earnest. I mean, he's, President Trump's on the warpath, and that's going to make a difference. Uh, President Trump tends to have effective attacks against his opposition. That's one of the things that made him able to walk through the Republican field in 2016. His attacks angered some people. But for other people, they, um, in, in a way, they amplify the weaknesses of the candidates that are running against him, and he's been effective at doing that. So people that write him off, and I, I hear this occasionally, um, I'll hear people say, well, there's no way Trump can get the nomination again. Right now, he is leading DeSantis by 30 points, uh, I mean, I mean in, in the polling. And again, the polls right now are not the main indicator, but they are a snapshot. And the snapshot today, the picture today of the Republican Party is that the Republican nomination for president is Donald Trump's to lose. Now, that may change the day Ron DeSantis gets in the race. And of course, it will change to some degree when Governor DeSantis, if he announces his run for the presidency, which everybody assumes he will, he's going to get an immediate bump in the polls. And that, that's what we would expect. But we don't know how that's going to turn out. I mean, so many things are going to revolve around the, uh, you know, what the candidates do, what they say. I don't see Nikki Haley or Senator Tim Scott or any of the other candidates that are running right now, Asa Hutchinson or others, 
I, I don't see them significantly cutting into either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. Right now, it's going to be Trump versus DeSantis should DeSantis get in the race, and we just don't know how that's going to shake out until that actually um, happens. In other words, until we, we see what the, the, uh, uh, the fight, how it evolves, what, what, what are going to be the issues. Um, we're pretty sure that DeSantis is going to, he's not going to be able to attack President Trump directly because there are voters that Governor DeSantis wants that are in the Trump camp that a direct assault against Trump is not going to help him. Um, and Trump doesn't have to worry about that. Trump doesn't think about those kind of things. He just goes after the opposition um, and tries to tear them down. And as I said earlier, he's been effective at doing that. Now, the New York Times, this, this has been really an interesting thing to follow because the New York Times wrote an editorial piece that was essentially by the editorial board saying Biden should take voters' concerns about age seriously. Um, and th this is not a right-wing paper, of course. We're talking about the New York Times. Now, it portrayed the story mostly as being uh, unfair attacks against President Biden that it's just not right for him, uh, for Republicans to pounce. And, of course, there's any negative story against Democrats is all about the story becomes about Republicans pouncing. It's not about the actual story. But as we, um, as, as we look at this, Biden's age is going to play a factor, along with foreign policy failures in Afghanistan, inflation, uh, which has been stubborn. Uh, the government's not been able to ease inflation very much for the average person. Um, you've got just a lot of things that are happening, supply chain uh, issues. Immigration is a disaster. I mean, there are many calls now among Republicans for Mayorkas to resign, and you don't have very many Democrats, if any, coming out and saying that Mayorkas should resign, but they're certainly raising the alarm bells about his job as the director of Homeland Security that he's not doing a very good job when it comes to immigration. And, and it's hard to defend him because immigration is such a disaster. And it's going to get worse starting about May 14th, May 15th, when we're going to have another flood of illegal aliens coming across the border, people trying to get here from Mexico. And, of course, coming from Mexico means they're coming from all over the world. They come into Mexico, um, and then they cross over the southern border. Homeland Security's got real concerns, not only about fentanyl, about human trafficking, but also uh, about terrorists coming across the border. Uh, people that are on the terrorist watch list, there's a big concern that there's an influx of those kind of people crossing the southern border. So President Biden's facing all of this, and now legitimate questions about his age are being raised, and those legitimate questions are being raised in left-wing circles even as Biden gets ready to announce probably tomorrow that he's going to run. All right, let's take a listen for to some things that happened over the weekend. For example, Chuck Todd asked Dick Durbin about Biden's age on Meet the Press, and this was that exchange. They believe he hasn't done enough to reassure Americans that he's up to the job. Uh, they note this. His standard line is, the only thing I can say is watch me about the ability to be president and serve a second term in his 80s. But Mr. Biden, the, the Times writes, has given voters very few chances to do just that, 
to, quote, watch him. And his refusal to engage with the public regularly raises questions about his age and health. Again, this comes from the New York Times, not some right-wing blog about this. Should President Biden be doing more to show Americans that he's up to the job? All right, we're going to get Durbin's answer in just a minute, but i got to stop right there for a second. I mean, Chuck Todd, um, I mean, he's a progressive, he's the poster boy for the left um, doing this, doing Meet the Press. But but here's the thing, the way that he asked that question, the condescending way that he talks about, this is not some, some uh, right-wing blog, as if the New York Times is not a left-wing blog. I mean, that's pretty much what it's been reduced to. It, it used the the old gray lady used to be in times past. It's always sort of leaned to the left, but in the last 10, 15 years, it's just become a left wing, pretty much a left wing rag. I mean, they just they're uh, they've dropped all sense of objectivity, and and you may say, well, now, now this story about President Biden and his age, this editorial opinion. Uh, it's you know it it proves that the New York Times is still it is still being um, not is not being biased. It's it's asking asking honest questions about President Biden's age. Yeah, but when you read the whole article, I mean, again, it comes across as it's it's created an opening for Republicans to criticize. It's not that the question of his age is genuine. It's well, it's kind of created an opening and. That suggests that attacks about President Biden's age are not legitimate. They're just coming from left-wing or rather right-wing sources. And, of course, that's in denial. Chuck Todd's in denial about the left-wing leaning of the New York Times. All right, here's Durbin's answer to Chuck Todd's question. Well, it won't my quote is not going to play. But basically what he said, I'll just quote it for you. I think his schedule reflects an active person mentally and physically who is engaging with the American people. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I would, I would ask if Dick Durbin's mental capacity is all that great, if that's his impression of President Biden. I mean, we've gone over and I'm not going to do it again today because it, it's just, I mean, it's, it, We've gone over, over and over the mental gaffes, the problems that President Biden has had when he speaks, the fact that when he finishes a speech, he wanders around on the stage until somebody comes and directs him where to go. I mean, this is the president of the United States. And we, I, I think there's a tremendous legitimate question about how really prepared that he is mentally to face the rigors not only of a campaign— I mean, forget the campaign. Let's talk about the rigors of being president of the United States and the questions and issues that we're facing today. Another opportunity we had, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, was on CNN with Dana Bash at State of the Union, and they had a conversation about Biden's age, and this is how that went. The fact is that many Democrats worry about his age. Even the New York Times editorial board, which is not exactly a bastion of conservatism, this weekend wrote that candidates shouldn't pretend, as Mr. Biden often does, that advanced age isn't an issue. These are concerns that are not going away, and you know that. So how do you think President Biden could overcome that? President Biden has such a strong record to run on. 
He has gotten this country through the pandemic. He has the backs of the American people. Yeah, he has the backs of the American people. Um, he's pretty much put a knife in the backs of the American people when it comes to the economy, when it comes to inflation, what people, what Americans are paying for goods and services. You know, we, I went out to dinner over the weekend and I went to a restaurant that I go to pretty frequently and I'm accustomed when I go by myself, there was, there was stuff going on here at the house. I couldn't, um, we, we weren't having a meal here. Denise was involved in some other things. And so I went to a restaurant that we like to go to together. What it cost me to have what I normally get at this restaurant is what it used to cost when Denise and I would go together and have dinner. I mean, it's it's really, it's unbelievable. When you get to the point that a single meal cost what used to, um, two meals would cost, uh, we know that we're still dealing with incredibly high inflation, no matter what the government's telling you, no matter what the Biden administration says. We've got, uh, I mean, just inflation is out of control. And so, you know, is, th- is that having the backs of the American people? Is it having the backs of the American people when you've got 17,000 Americans in Sudan and the State Department, after evacuating all of the diplomats, they don't even have a plan. They're not even talking about a plan to get Americans out of Sudan. Their advice is don't go to Sudan, and if you're in Sudan, get out. Well, how are they supposed to get out without assistance from the State Department? I mean, this is the kind of thing that Americans see President Biden doing. You know, that there was a, uh, these Pentagon secrets that got released and, and has been in the news. One of the secrets that we found out is that since the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, ISIS has reestablished themselves there. Now, we knew that was going to happen. You know, we were being told that ISIS and the Taliban were at odds with each other and that they were the Taliban was was not going to put up with having ISIS there as a terrorist or, uh, organization the Taliban's not really terrorists they're not wanting to hurt Americans or other people abroad they just want to be um, turn Afghanistan into a, an Islamic country and a dictatorship uh, and, and and so we don't need to worry so much about the rise of ISIS well ISIS has made a stunning comeback in Afghanistan, and the Biden administration really doesn't want to talk about that part of the secrets that got released because it's true, they know it's true, and they know that it's part and parcel with the disastrous withdrawal. According to that report, ISIS is already planning about 12 terrorist operations um, in against sports complexes, churches, business centers around the world. Now, we, we don't know when we're going to see, and we hope we don't see these things come to pass. We hope that our intelligence agencies have the information that's necessary to thwart these attacks before they start. But it's unlikely. And the thing that makes terrorism difficult to deal, deal with is when they have a base of operation, when they have a place that is a safe haven, that they can plan, they can work, they can recruit, they can build their network, and all of that is happening with ISIS in Afghanistan right now. That's a failure of President Biden. So you've got, you've got the economy, you've got uh, immigration, you've got the Pentagon Papers showing this is the, the botched withdrawal in Afghanistan is leading to a real threat against Americans because of the rise of ISIS, 
with all these attacks that are being planned. And they're being able, ISIS is being able to operate with near immunity in Afghanistan. So when you take all of that into consideration, what is President Biden going to run on? Amy Klobuchar says he's going to run on his record. What record? I mean, actually, I hope he runs on his record. Because I think if he runs on his record, he gets trounced, no matter who the Republican candidate is. Because his record with the American people has been abysmal. We've got... We're approaching $32 trillion in debt. We continue to be in a deficit spending mode, even though economically, um, with with that kind of debt hanging over us, we're in economic peril. You've got the dollar being attacked around the world. You've got China being aggressive toward Taiwan, um, China being aggressive in the trade markets. I, I was reading a story the other day that China's economy which was really ravaged by the pandemic, is beginning to recover. And China's starting to show the economic power that it had prior to the pandemic. And this is all bad news for the United States. It's bad news with the Russia-Ukraine conflict when that drags on and the American people see that. I, I just don't see how President Biden running against any of the Republican candidates has a chance to be reelected as president, but we'll see. I mean, that's there's more to come, obviously. That's going to be the big debate going forward, and you'll be hearing a lot about that here, and I'll be writing about it as well. All right, let's talk about it, a little bit about what's going on in Sudan because it's a, it's a disaster there. Rival factions have broken out into open warfare in Sudan, um, and as, as I said earlier, we were able to get all of our diplomats out. The United States had to use SEAL Team 6, elements of SEAL Team 6, plus other military to get all of the the, the ambassador, the diplomats, the people that, that were at the U.S. Embassy in Sudan to get them out of the country. But as many as 17,000 Americans are trapped there. Now, we don't know the actual number of Americans in Sudan because the number that we have is the number that's registered with the, um, with, the, with the embassy, the American embassy there. And so there are a lot of people, when they leave the country, they come back, they don't re-register. So that number could be much higher. But the point is that the State Department has decided that there's nothing they can do about those 17,000 Americans. They're just going to you know, tell them, we're, we're going to provide you with some escape routes uh, we're going to send you. Can you imagine being an American in Sudan and you're trapped in a civil war in Khartoum and you're trying to get out of the country? And what does the State Department say? They send you a map that says if you can find your way to this trail or this road, maybe you can get out of the country without without being killed. I mean, that Germany, for example, according to The Washington Post, the German government just flew about a plane load, about 106 German nationals, out of Sudan. So there are countries, Germany is maybe an exception because other countries, Great Britain and others, have not figured out how to do this. But if the Germans can fly German nationals out of Sudan, it seems to me that the United States State Department could find a way to rescue these Americans and people in Sudan that have dual citizenship to get them out of the country. But there's what what's disappointing is that the, in, but it's 
you know, it's disappointing, but it's not surprising that the State Department would just throw up their hands and say, well, the violence has gotten too bad. There's nothing that we can do. Uh, Abdel Fattah el-Buhan leads the Sudanese armed forces, and he's opposed by Rapid Support Forces leader General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. Now, the, these rapid deployment forces, rapid support forces, they were used for um, in Darfur to try to get rid of the genocide that was taking on there, that was taking place there, and they were part of the Sudanese armed forces. But when it came time for them to come back together, then you know the thing is when you give power uh, to a, to a general and you give him an army. And then this kind of thing can happen. They can decide, well, you know, I've got enough soldiers over here. I've got enough power. Why do I need to give back power to the Sudanese army? I'll just take over the place. And, of course, the Sudanese armed forces are not going to allow that to happen. So you've got civil war. In 2019, they worked together to get rid of Omar al-Bashir out of Darfur and to uh, try to stop the genocide that was taking place there. But then after they got rid of him, they transi- They promised to transition Sudan to a form of, de- of democracy, but changed course in 2021 when they came together and decided to the provisional government had to go, and they set up a military coup. They've been promising free elections, and, and every time a date comes up, they move to another date. So right now in Sudan, they say free elections are going to take place July 23rd, but now that's not likely to happen at all because with the civil war raging, they're going to push any kind of elections off. And of course, in Sudan, the question is raised, does it really matter about free elections? Because with the provisional government, it looked like they were going to have some form of democracy, and then the uh, Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces got together and staged a military coup. So it, it, it's, there's really no guarantee that you're ever going to get end up with any kind of democratic reforms in that country. But while the violence affects the entire country, the fiercest fighting has been in Khartoum. Uh, former Prime Minister Miriam Amadadi granted an interview to CBS and said no one is safe in the capital. I mean, it was horrendous the way she was describing what's going on on the streets of Khartoum. She was talking about people's bodies lying in the streets and just no one to try to go out and to remove them or to restore any kind of order because you've got hundreds of people that have been killed, thousands that have been wounded, and you've got just total chaos. And and one of the bad things about this is that this is beginning to spread over to Ethiopia and Ethiopia was a country that just has just come out of a civil war. They're, they're a country that has been dealing with their own problems and now have gotten somewhat stable. And this Sudanese civil war looks like it's going to spread. It's crossing over the border. You've got supply chain issues in that part of the world. You've got drought. Uh, you put those two things together, and it's estimated that 15 million Sudanese are dealing with acute hunger. And then, of course, World Relief, the UN food, uh, not World Relief, but the World Food Relief from the United Nations, they've had to pull out because there's there's no way that they can be sure that they can protect their people. There have been three World Food Relief workers killed. 
uh, three of the aides were killed as the Sudanese civil war heated up. And so they're not going to send civilians in there. They're not going to send people that are associated with the UN uh, in, in a humanitarian effort if they can't protect their people. So this thing has the potential of being uh, even more of a disaster. And the criticism, which is rightly, it's right criticism of the Biden administration, is that it seems that there's no, uh, the, the Biden administration doesn't have any plan to get Americans out. The State Department, when asked about this, basically said as much, that what they're doing is telling Americans not to go, and like I said earlier, sending them maps to try to show them escape routes. Without military support, um, that's not going to work for a lot of people. You're going to have Americans trapped. You're going to have Americans losing their lives. It seems to me if Germany can do it, the United States could get people out of Sudan if they wanted to do it. All right, I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about um, a Wall Street Journal article that highlights the surprising surge of faith among young people. This is by Claire Ansbury. She's writing for the Wall Street Journal. And she begins her article by saying that a greater share of young adults say they believe in a higher power or God. Now, on the surface, evangelicals have been getting a lot of bad news about young people and religion. Uh, we're being told that uh, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who don't have any religious affiliation, are is growing exponentially, particularly among young people. And so that doesn't bode well for the future of Christianity and particularly particular evangelicals in the United States going forward. So can we read this article and say, wow, this is actually a ray of good news. Here it looks like we've got young people that are turning back to God. And a lot of the analysis says that it was due to the pandemic, the hopelessness, the problems that young people in particular faced during the pandemic have led them on a path to find God. But is it God or is it a higher power? Because those two things are not the same. I mean, just any higher power is not a true expression of Christianity. And if, if young people are turning away from the church, and even though they're becoming interested in spiritual things, if those spiritual things are nebulous, if they've got, if, if it's just the name of God and it doesn't matter which God you worship, then that's not good news for evangelicals. It's bad news for the church. It does tell us that young people are searching that they're willing, they're open, they want to know something about God. And the church needs to step in and have the message that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he can save us from our sins and that he can give us purpose and meaning in life and strengthen us for the journey by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the church needs that message to resonate with young Americans today. And I think it has a lot to do with the way that we present it. I don't think it's a message that young Americans will turn away from if the church can figure out how to present it in a way that draws them rather than repels them. Okay, here's, here's the second paragraph of Claire Ansbury's story here. About a third of 18 to 25-year-olds say they believe more than doubt the existence of a higher power, and that's up from one quarter in 2021. Now, that's a significant rise in a short period of time, from 2021 to 2023. 
Now, that's according to a recent survey of young adults. The findings, based on December polling, are part of an annual report on the state of religion and youth from the Springtide Research Institute that is a nonpartisan nonprofit. Young adults, theologians, and church leaders attribute the increase in part to the need for the people to believe in something after the years of loss during the pandemic. For a lot of people, they faced, a lot of young people, they faced some pretty big challenges during the pandemic, and they lost their their jobs, they were transitioned to working from home, and now they're having to transition back to the workforce. So this is opening them up. They're, they're looking around, they see the culture, they see the problems that we have, and they're beginning to ask the question, is there a, a quote, higher power? Many young, young adults say they don't necessarily believe in a God depicted in images they remember from childhood or described in biblical passages, but do believe there is a higher benevolent deity. Other polls, including Gallup, ask specifically about believing in God, and, that, and they show a decline in young adults' who believe in God. So here's the good news, bad news scenario. The good news for the church, for evangelicals, is that young people are beginning to question their atheism. And it's because we're created with a desire to know the transcendent. We're created with a longing in our heart for God. And it just depends on what we're going to plug in to that place. We can plug in the truth or we can plug in some nebulous idea of God. We can create a God in our own image rather than acknowledging that we are created in the image of God. And when we create a God in our own image, it is not going to be the one true God. It's going to be a God who is sort of like a bellhop God who meets, or a smorgasbord God, a bellhop God who meets all of our our needs that we create in order to do that, or a smorgasbord God that just simply is a little bit of this, a little bit of that, some Buddhism, a little Islam thrown in, some Christianity on the top, and that is not the kind of relationship that will lead people to the peace that they seek. I mean, this is, you know, what what people are looking for, they're looking for meaning, purpose, and peace. And meaning, purpose, and peace cannot come from a nebulous view of God, an idea of God. It doesn't have to be the images of God that you had from your childhood, but it needs to be a genuine seeking of the one true God of the universe. The Reverend Daryl Roberts, pastor of 19th Street Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., says the pandemic, racial unrest, fears of job loss, and other economic worries stripped away the protective layers that many young people felt surrounded them, no longer feeling invincible. He says some are turning to God for protection. Quote, we're seeing an openness to transcendence among young people that we haven't seen for some time. That's Abigail uh, Visco Rusert who's associate dean of Princeton Theological Seminary and an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church. At the same time, many young adults say that they, they feel disconnected from organized religion over issues like racial justice, gender equity, and immigration rights and believe in God or a higher power that doesn't necessarily translate into church attendance or religious affiliation. Look, I don't, I don't have a problem with a, a, a deep problem with people saying that they don't want to be religious but we, because that I, I, religion is not the answer to the problems. It's a relationship. It's a deep abiding belief in the truth of God as revealed in the scripture. 
But all this is telling us, all this information tells us, is that the door of opportunity is open for the church to present Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to get to God. It's the door of opportunity we have to reach this generation, and we'd better step through it, and we better have a message that is a message of hope and not just a message of condemnation. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in truth. I believe that uh, the truth of God has to be preached and taught, that we can't compromise with the culture. That's not, that's not compromise of the culture. It's not what's going to give us the opportunity to reach people, and it's not going to make uh, it's, it's not going to make the world better. Um, that, that can't be the answer, but we do have to reach the culture by speaking the truth to them in a way that's compelling, a way that can get their attention. Um, Wall Street Journal NC, uh, NORC poll that was published last, mo- last month rather found that 31% of younger Americans age 18 to 29 said religion was very important to them, which was the lowest percentage of all adult age groups. A Pew Research Center study released last month found that 30% of 18 to 29-year-olds attend religious services monthly or more, and that's down from, that is, uh, let's see, they're saying that's 20, oh, I'm sorry, 20% of 18 to 29-year-olds, and that's down from 24% in 2019. And then it goes into a personal story. You know, church attendance, the fellowship of believers, the coming together to worship, to hear God's Word, and to encourage each other is an extremely important part of life in our culture. I mean, it it sets the the guardrails, the boundaries that keep us from flying off in every direction. It gives us an opportunity to come in contact with God the way that God has said we should come in contact with Him. You know, if if God is transcendent being, is the transcendent being that young people say He is, then logically it should follow that God gets to decide in his transcendence, in his sovereignty, he gets to decide how we're going to relate to him. And he's told us in his word that we're to relate to him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if, if that's not what we seek, then no matter how we look, no matter what we try to fill that void with, it's not going to make things better. And the church needs to be better at sharing the message of hope that the Bible brings, because it is a message of hope. It's a message of truth. And yes, social justice, equity, all those things that infiltrate every part of our culture today, uh, the woke agenda of progressives is hijacking the the spirituality of our young people. It's, it's causing them to say, well, these things over here are important. The Bible seems to contradict these things, so I need to go out and create a religion that can embrace my views that are woke and progressive, and I'm going to create my own space and create my own God that approves of those actions. Well, that's not moving the culture, and it's not moving individuals into a right relationship or a closer relationship with God, and it's not improving our culture. So while this information, bottom line on this story from the Wall Street Journal, 
The door of of opportunity is open to the church because disillusioned young people who find that atheism is unsatisfying, those disillusioned young people are going to, if they can hear the truth, if we can be winsome in the way that we message, if we can step into the culture and speak the truth in love and do it without being disparaging to people, if we can genuinely demonstrate that the church cares about everybody, regardless of the sin they may be in bondage to, or regardless of what what they may say about God, that we care about them, then maybe we can preach the truth and get them by us being winsome to come to know Jesus as Savior, to come to understand that the only hope, you you can't make your own God. You can't make up something, call it God. That's idolatry, and that's one of the things as you read through the Scripture that God constantly condemned and brought nations under judgment for was abandoning the truth of the one true God and simply creating gods that would appease Uh, our own desires. And that's been going on for a long time and is still going on today. All right, I've got one more story I want to talk about for a few minutes as we wrap up today. Uh, This story comes out of Oregon, and it's very very disturbing. There's, um, um, and I want to look at two aspects of what's happening in Oregon with adoption um, and Christians. Christians are being forced out of the adoption process in Oregon simply because of their Christian faith. Uh, They can't embrace same-sex ideology. They can't embrace gender ideology. And so the state is basically saying if you can't embrace those things, then you can't adopt children in the state of Oregon. And ADF has stepped in and said, look, this is a violation of the First Amendment rights. You can't deny Christians the opportunity to adopt children because they're Christians, because that's religious animus. Jessica Bates is sort of the center of this controversy in Oregon. She's a single mother of five. She lost her husband six years ago in a car accident, and she saw a story about a man who was adopted out of a foster care system as a child and the things he was able to do and accomplish because he realized that there were people that wanted him. So she was pretty far along in the process. It made her want to adopt. And she was pretty far along in the process when she began noticing that there was an emphasis on the LGBTQ policies in Oregon. So she told him, she said, look, I I can't go along with this. I'm a Christian. I, I can't Uh, support and accept and support preferred gender identity of any child um, that's going to be placed in the home. And so Oregon said, well, we're going to put your application on hold. And then a couple of months later, they came back and said, we've just denied your, your application altogether. And DHS, then Oregon DHS, released a statement saying that their child welfare division stands behind and in support of transgender issues, uh, the transgender community, I mean, the, the thing that you would expect them. In fact, they, had, they went on to mention non-binary, uh, gender fluid, and they even used this phrase, which I, I don't see this very much. I've seen it some, but it's LGBTQIA2+. Or no, two, let, let, me get, let me go back and do it again. I See, I can't even... <laughs> I mean, how can you 
cut through the confusion of all this. LGBTQIA25 plus children. And, and who knows what that what the S or 2S children, what all what the S means or um, I guess the plus is just add your own characteristic because some say there's up to 150 different forms of gender. Some say it's more than that. Well, the department claimed that gender diverse people are under, under attack in the United States and they're committed to a safe, supported environment for all children and young people regardless of their gender, gender identity. What they're not committed to is the opportunity for Christians to adopt. You have to adhere to the state's gender ideology or you can't become an adoptive parent in the state of Oregon. And Jamie Bates has the, the Alliance Defending Freedom on her side. They filed, filed a lawsuit for religious discrimination. There was a case like this in Washington State a few years ago. And the judge in that case said that Christianity could not be the sole reason that a child would not be be placed in uh, a particular home. Uh, the, the courts ruled that Christianity could be used as a compatibility test. In other words, I suppose if you have a child that's already exhibiting some kind of uh, gender uh, confusion, that you can choose to put that child with parents who would support it if the state sees fit, but you can't say to Christians that you can't adopt at all because there's a possibility that you wouldn't uh, support the gender fluidity of a child that's placed in your care. And so that this is likely how this is going to turn out in Oregon, and eventually the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in on this. But while all this is going on, then you've got a bill in Oregon that explicitly would require Oregon health insurance plans to pay for gender transition medical interventions, including cosmetic procedures such as electrolysis, electrolysis rather, uh, facial feminization surgery, but it, it doesn't cover the equivalent for detransition care. So in other words, at, that a, a senator realized this in Oregon and said, you know, if we're going to have health insurance companies being forced to cover the cost of people that are transitioning, then that same insurance should be available for not only for gender-affirming treatment, but they that should include people who want to detransition. So uh, this is what this is what the law from HB 2002. This is what the law would say: gender-affirming treatment means a procedure, service, drug, device, or product that a physical or behavioral health care provider prescribes to treat an individual for incongruence between the individual's gender identity and the individual's sex assignment at birth. Health benefit, the, and, and then uh, Section C says the health benefit plan has the meaning given that term, meaning a licensed insurance company, a health care contractor, or HMO, or association of employers. So this covers everybody. I mean, you can't... <laughs> You could get a group of people together and say, we're going to pool our resources, and that's going to be our insurance fund. Even they would have to offer, under this law, the gender-affirming care uh, that would be called for for other for major insurance companies to offer. So detransitioners in Oregon are seeking their care to restore congruence, which is what is, is, you know, is described here, 
the congruence between the individual's gender identity and their sex assignment, that there are those who are detransitioning that saying that's what we're trying to get. We're trying to get congruence, and we want to be covered as part of this insurance coverage. And so Republican Ed Deal thought, well, that makes sense. So he filed an amendment to provide equal coverage for medical services for detransitioners. If you're going to provide it for transitioners, then provide it for detransitioners. And it's, it said, I, he said, I introduced an, uh, an 11-amendment to the House Bill in 2002, it, or rather House Bill 2002, not the year, but the bill number. It would have mandated insurance coverage for detransition treatments similar to how the base bill covers gender-affirming treatment. The amendment was flatly rejected by Democrats. They call the amendment controversial. Now, just, just keep this in your mind. Anytime you doubt that gender transition is an ideological position, anytime you doubt that gender transition can only go one way, in other words, we can only affirm those who are transitioning from something other than their birth gender, that if it, when you think, well, th this is a fair system or an equitable, Democrats only want it to run one way. If you're detransitioning, you're coming against the, the, the narrative, the story. It doesn't support where Democrats, where progressives are. They want to give money from insurance companies and force them to support people who are going in one direction, but they want to give nothing to people who say, you know what, I, made a, I need to think about this. I made a mistake here. I want to detransition. I want to actually be able to get my original gender back. Now, that's very difficult, but and it's very expensive, but it is possible. It's a difficult road. But the fact that Democrats are completely opposed in the state of Oregon, and they would be in every state, to having insurance companies pay for that shows you that the woke agenda of the progressive Democrat Party only flows in one direction. It's not about health care. They want you to think that this is a legitimate health care issue. If it was, then they would support spending money to help people detransition. But it's a political statement. It's an ideology, uh, ideological statement. They can't give an inch when it comes to a person who says that they're in the wrong body, even if that person realizes that they made a mistake. And that I'm, I'm telling you, um, that that's bad news because it it's it's good news in the sense that it opens up and shows where the progressives are on this, that it's not a legitimate health care issue. It can't be if you don't care about the health care uh, feelings or the health care needs of everybody. It, it, it should make everybody step back and say, okay, if detransitioners have no right to health care, transitioners should have no right. And if detransitioners if there's more and more of them happening, maybe what we're doing here is insane by promoting all of this transition away from the sex that's assigned at birth. But, of course, you can't have that because it doesn't meet the narrative that progressives are putting out there. All right, that's all the time that we've got for today. I appreciate you joining us on Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. We try to cover a lot of topics in an hour. This program, of course, is also a podcast. 
It'll be available later today at, uh, well, I know it'll be at Spotify and hopefully other outlets that do podcasts. It'll be available soon. You can go to drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com and look for things that I've written and listen to more of this program. God bless you.